Our call to worship this morning, as we continue in God's garden, is from Isaiah chapter 1. God calls us to worship. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah son of Amoz saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master and the donkey his own manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. Why should you be beaten any more? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged with soothed with oil. Your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire, your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a field of melons, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty has left us survivors, we would have been like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and of fat, of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moon, Sabbath, and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See how the faithful city has become a harlot. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Therefore the Lord, the Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares... Ah, I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away all your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your judges as in days of old. Your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness, but rebels and sinners will both be broken and those who forsake the Lord will perish. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks 
in which you have delighted, you will be disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen. You will be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. The mighty man will become tender and his work a spark. Both will burn together with no one to quench the fire. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Sam, can you come lead us in prayer? Our scripture reading is from Jeremiah chapter 31, the very next prophet in your Bible after Isaiah. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 27. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will plant the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the offspring of men and of animals, just as I watched over them to uproot and tear down and to overthrow, destroy, and bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days, people will no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Instead, everyone will die for his own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, his own teeth will be set on edge. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Let's sing Psalm number 9b. The remarkable fact about modern medicine is that the drugs that are available today from doctors are extremely powerful. When used in their proper place, this is a good thing. Anyone that has struggled with a raging infection understand and should be thankful for the availability of strong antibiotics, for example, that can be used in emergencies. You know, it used to take many lives, just a common infection can now be handled and solved with modern medicine, which are really, for example, strong antibiotics. Modern medicine is powerful and can and has saved many lives when it's used, of course, in its own proper place for emergencies. However, a lot of people forget an important thing about the drugs that are available today. People don't often realize that how powerful these modern medicines really are and how dangerous that they can also be. If used carelessly or improperly, the powerful medications available today can be deadly. We can see that, with, a, for example, if you take the wrong dose of something that your doctor gives you as a prescription, you can actually die from it. If you're not realizing what different medications you have, you have an interaction with drugs and you can have an effect of, of your medicine designed to heal you actually kill you. And that's a good lesson to learn. And you know what's interesting? The Bible actually tells us that the gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful medicine. We saw that at the end of the book of Revelation because the leaves from the tree are given for the healing of the nations. That's really the image that's being used at the end of Revelation. The gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful medicine, which means we should understand something very important about the gospel. The gospel is also deadly if it's not used properly. You know, a lot of people don't pay attention to those warnings on the label 
of the medicines that they use, whether they come over the counter or whether they come from their doctor. And if they're not careful, they can actually put themselves into a very dangerous situation. And we know, of course, that, that there are many people in our country that die from the, from the wrong use of even helpful medicines. Well, the very same thing applies to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The last few verses of the book of Revelation are a warning label on John's apocalypse, on John's unveiling of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I found it remarkable in my study this week that when I looked at commentaries about these last few verses of Revelation, I only found one commentary in all the ones that I have on my shelf that I actually use fairly regularly that had very much to say about these last few verses of the book of Revelation. And yet, if you look at these verses in in terms of the story that we've been going over from Genesis to Revelation, these last few verses are very, very powerful. And we're going to see how they connect all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. So people don't realize what the story is, the garden story, and so they don't really understand how important this warning label is at the very end of the book of Revelation. John's warning label, however, is nothing new. It is the unveiling of God's warning that has been posted for God's people from the very beginning. So as we come to the last few verses of the last book of the Bible, we find a remarkable fact about the end of Revelation. John ends the book of Revelation talking about some of the same details that we saw at the very beginning of Genesis. So let's go to our text now in Revelation chapter 22. And as we read from verse 17 on, remember the story, the garden story that we've been looking at over the last week. Verse 17, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Now, does anything in those verses look familiar to you from the story that we've been looking at? Note how the invitation is to come, those who thirst and drink freely of the water of life. And actually, if you look at this in terms of the, of the book of Revelation, this is actually the, com- the completing part of Jesus' invitation back in Revelation chapter 3 that Jesus knocks on the door and he will come in and dine or eat with anyone who will open the door and allow him to commune with him. Now we have the call to come and drink because they ate first in this culture and then they drank. But the water here, the water of life, takes us back to the very beginning of Genesis with the garden because that's one of the descriptions that we have of the garden. There, was a, there, was, there were rivers or springs that would come up from the ground and go out and water the earth in the garden. And that would, of course, would satisfy the thirst for the land. And the parallel here is now this water, this free gift of the water of life, which we've seen in the Gospel of John, for example, is all about Jesus Christ. He talked about himself as the water of life and that those who partook of his gospel, that believed in his, in his message, they would have a spring of water welling up from inside of them unto eternal life, and they would never thirst again. And so John is really talking about the same thing Jesus talked about, 
the, very, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the water of life. Now notice in verse 18, another familiar image. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. And your translation may give a warning about being removed from the book of life rather than being removed from the tree of life. There's actually a variation here in, some, some, in the original Greek, various texts. And I'm fairly confident that the proper translation is a warning about being removed from the tree of life. Textual scholars that I looked at explained why there's a difference here. And it's sort of interesting because it, actually the source of the difference comes from old Latin translations of the Bible. And you Latin students can probably understand this because we've been studying Latin. But in Latin, the word for tree and the word for book are very, very similar. And so you have, for example, the Latin word for tree is ligno and the Latin word for book is libro, as in librarian or library. And somebody, when they were translating or copying the translation in the Latin, they mistook the word ligno for libro and so now we have the warning is take, being taken away from the book of life rather than the tree of life. So those two words are very close in Latin and that's where this variation comes from. But I believe that the correct answer, the correct way this should read is uh, the warning about being taken from the tree of life. And the reason I'm confident about that is because John is patterning his ending based on the beginning of the story that Genesis tells. What was Adam told? God told Adam in Genesis 2 that if he disobeyed God's word, then he would surely die. And we saw what that death was. That death was being removed from the tree of life and kicked out of the, the Garden of Eden because they broke covenant. Eating that, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil was breaking the covenant between God and man and that led to the removal from the tree of life. And that's exactly what John is warning about here. Those who add or take away from this prophecy of the book of life would be removed from their share of the tree of life and the holy city, which we've seen the tree is actually inside of the holy city in the earlier chapters of Revelation 21 and earlier in chapter 22. So just as Genesis 2 gave Adam a warning about death and being removed from the tree of life, so John gives a gospel warning. What you really have here is a warning about a new death penalty. Removed from the tree of life is a death penalty just like it was in Genesis chapter 2. Now this, this, this language of adding to or taking away from God's word is actually taken from the Old Testament. We don't sometimes realize that adding to or taking away from the word was a figure of speech in the Old Testament for breaking God's covenant. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 4 and we'll see how Moses uses the same, very same language when he's warning the people about God's covenant. Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, just 1 and 2. Hear now, O Israel, the decrees and laws I am about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you. Do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it but keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I give you. That's where John's getting this adding and subtracting from. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 4 and Moses' warnings 
not to break the covenant. And I believe actually the warnings here go all the way back to the garden because if you look at the parallel, what is being promised to Israel is much like Adam in the garden. They are being promised life. They are being promised a land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you, just like the, the land of Eden, the garden of Eden, was given to Adam and to his wife. And they are told not to break the covenant. And if you look at verse 26 of Deuteronomy chapter 4, you'll see the result is very much similar to what happened with Adam and Eve as well. I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you this day that you will quickly perish from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not live there long, but will certainly be destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and only a few of you will survive among the nations which the Lord will drive you. So what happened is, if the warning in Deuteronomy 4 is if they break the covenant, just like Adam was cast out of the garden and sent into the, into the wilderness among the other nations, so also Israel would also perish from the land, from that garden, that garden promised inheritance that God had promised the fathers. So what does John do at the end of his revelation of Jesus Christ? He gives a warning to God's people that is just like the original warning. God will take away from you your share of the tree of the life and your place in the holy city. This is the new covenant death penalty. The gospel comes with a new covenant death penalty. And throughout this series, I've tried to point out how the prophets are always looking forward to this aspect of, the, of this new covenant situation that they would be to have their sins forgiven, that God would judge between them, God would vindicate the righteous and destroy the wicked. That's why you read Isaiah at the end of it chapter 1 of Isaiah, you have this promise that the righteous would be vindicated and the wicked would be destroyed. This is what the prophets look forward to. And in our, in our scripture reading in Jeremiah chapter 31, Jeremiah looked forward to a time when every man would die for his own sin. And he gave that promise. He looked forward to that time in the time of the new covenant. Because Jeremiah 31, if you look at the context, is talking about the new covenant. Well, well ask yourself, why would Jeremiah the prophet be wanting to look forward to a time when every man would die for his own sin. Well, he would want that because in his situation, he was about to be carried off into exile, a righteous prophet of God with the ungodly. That was his situation. He was in the, in the situation of being punished with his nation, even as a righteous prophet. And he looked forward to a time which he could see that the righteous would be vindicated and would be blessed and the wicked would die for their own sin. Because Jeremiah was going into death among the nations when Babylon came in and destroyed Judah. And Jeremiah was going into death and in this kind of separation from God's presence with all of the wicked people. And so we have this idea of Jeremiah looking forward to a new death penalty, something that would be better, something that would separate the wicked from the righteous. And that's what we see here with this death penalty that's, that's being sort of brought to the end of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you think about what happened in the New Testament period, you see this separation going on between God's people. You have the Jews who claimed that they were God's people, and yet what did they do? They acted wickedly, rejected their Messiah, put him on a cross, and then persecuted his people. And so they were the wicked who claimed to be God's people, and yet you have the Christians who accepted Christ, lived righteous and holy lives, and embraced the gospel. And every man dying for their own sin, of course, in a physical sense, took place in AD 70 when there was this final separation between the Christians and the Jews who rejected the Messiah. And that's what Jeremiah looked forward to. 
So throughout this series, I have tried to communicate to you that these last chapters of Revelation are really a symbolic representation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the city is really the New Jerusalem, the church. The tree of life and the holy city are not things that we get to experience at the end of the world sometime in the future. That's the way most people read this, but that's really not what's going on here because of all these connections back to the garden, connections to the story that we've seen. And if you think about it, if um, this is talking strictly about the future, think about what that would mean. Wouldn't that suggest, if this is talking about heaven, that John is warning about people getting kicked out of heaven? So think about that. If this is writing about the future, being removed from the tree of life and being removed from the, from the holy city, which most people take as heaven, then the implication is that God is promising to kick people out of heaven. That's a real problem of thinking of this in the future. But if we think of this in the way it was meant to be about who the church is and the gospel of Jesus Christ, now it makes sense. Do people get kicked out of the church? Yes, they do get kicked out of the church. Do they apostatize from the faith? Yes, they do apostatize from the faith and remove themselves through God's judgment from the tree of life, from Jesus Christ himself. And so we see even in the indications here at the end of this chapter that John is talking about the gospel now. He's talking about the holy city, the church, uh, which is the new Jerusalem, living in history now that we're all a part of. So this is really talking about a warning against apostasy. This is the new covenant death penalty, the warning for death. We have the same patterns going on from the very beginning. God provided a fountain of life at no cost for Adam. Remember? God planted the beautiful garden. God made the waters to flow. God made Adam. No charge. We see the same thing going on here. God has created his people by grace to live by the gospel just like Adam was called to live in the garden. God has made us sons and daughters of God just like Adam and Eve in the garden and just like Adam and Eve in the garden God gives us a warning about the danger of covenant death this is the warning label that comes on the gospel of Jesus Christ right here at the very bottom of his prophecy so now we have come again in the details at the end of our Bible back to the very beginning of the story now the most the most important thing that I hope you take away from this garden series is at the very beginning of the Bible is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The very middle of the Bible is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the very end of the Bible is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what this story has been about. It's about showing how everything is connected together. Everything is really talking about the same story. Adam was created in the wilderness. Remember, he was created outside the garden. God made Adam out in the wilderness. He put him back into the garden told him what to do, gave him jobs to do, and then we know what happened after that. Adam broke the covenant. He was kicked out of the garden. Same thing happened with Israel. God took Israel out of Egypt, made them a nation in the wilderness at Sinai. His people gave them the law at Sinai, placed them in the garden, in the land of inheritance, and we know what happened with Israel. He gave Israel a job to do to protect the land, to, to fill the land, and to be a minister to the nations around Israel broke that command, engaged in idolatry, and God came back, judged them, kicked them out of the land, just like what happened to Adam and Eve. Same story all over again. And now we have, of course, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel comes with this same warning label. Now, 
When you start thinking about the gospel at the very beginning of the Bible, it will change how you look at Adam and Eve. And if you start thinking about the gospel at the very end of the Bible, it will start changing how you think of the the book of Revelation. So I want to talk a little bit about the implications that flow from the covenant understanding of the Bible. And they are huge. The implications are huge. When you start thinking of Adam and Eve relating to God in the gospel, what we know of as the gospel today was there present in seed form in miniature. It changes how you look at that whole scene. For example, take Adam in the garden as an example of the gospel. Very few people think of Adam's relationship to God as a family relationship. God the Father made Adam the Son. And we talked about how Adam was made in God's image and likeness and he was to do what God does. And so we learned very from the very beginning that Adam was given a job to protect and tend the garden. Well, how does God protect and tend the garden? He removes evil from himself and keeps that at a distance and remains holy. Well, that's what Adam's job was to do. To tend the garden was a gospel job. He was to remove anything evil or anything that was to corrupt him from his presence, just like God did with Adam and Eve later on. And so when the snake comes in and starts tempting the woman, what was Adam's job? His job was to protect the garden, kill the serpent, and remove him from their presence. That's what Jesus told Satan. Remove yourself, Satan, from me. Okay? So Adam was made in God's image to do what God does and therefore to tend the garden just like God tends the garden. But the father-son relationship between Adam and God contradicts the way most Christians think of the original garden scene. I'll give you an example. Most Christians, at least within our heritage, think that Adam would have suffered God's death sentence the moment he committed any sin whatsoever. That's how we're taught. Okay? In other words, people think that this original garden scene is where God put Adam in the garden, he gives Adam all these blessings, a wife, he gives him a job to do, he he puts dominion over the animals, he gives him the the gardening chores. God does all this thing by all this by grace, and then God lies in wait, waiting for Adam just to do one sin. Right? That's how we in our heritage think of Adam in the garden. And then God's sitting there laying there waiting for him to make one sin, and then when he sins, gotcha! You're out of here. That's how our heritage looks at Adam in the garden. Does that look like the gospel to you? Does that look like a long-suffering, slow-to-anger father? No, it doesn't. I would suggest to you that if Adam got up in the morning and was rude to his wife, and if he did not love his wife like he was called to love her, I do not believe that Adam would have been thrown out of the garden. Why? Because what does the text say? One thing leads to death. Eat that tree of the knowledge of good and evil and you will die. That's what Adam was told. And we've gotten away from that and speculated about all this idea that that Adam was in this different kind of covenant than anything else and God was ready to throw throw him out of the garden as soon as he made any sin. Of course, that causes great big problems for the story because what about Israel? Israel was placed in the garden as well, right? Did Israel get thrown out of the land the first time anybody sinned in the land? No. God provided a means in covenant by which to take care of sin. That's what the sacrificial system was all about in Israel. God gave them that to reconcile the covenant relationship. I believe that Adam 
could have reconciled his relationship from wrongdoing in general in the garden. One thing led to death in the garden, and that was to break the covenant. Just like Israel, one thing led to breaking the covenant, and that was idolatry. The story of the garden never says that if Adam committed any sin, he would be removed from God's presence. What father treats his children that way? Only a rotten father. So, this idea of the gospel in the garden changes things just a little bit about how we look at this story. So now that we understand that there's only one sin that God told Adam that would lead to death, and now that we understand the garden is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ, can you think of anything where Jesus talked about one sin that leads to death? You know, not only do you have just one sin in, in the original garden that leads to death, you have one sin that leads to death in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. And we'll see here that John is giving us a new covenant death penalty, but John's not making anything new up. Matthew chapter 12, verses 30 through 32. Jesus says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. So I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Now consider what Jesus says here in his context. This is before the crucifixion. He understood what was going to happen at the crucifixion. He understood that his own brothers and his own sisters, the Jews, would speak against the Son of Man. What did they they tell to Pilate? Let his blood be upon us and upon our children. Crucify him. And they did. They crucified him. And yet what happens in the story after that? When we get to Pentecost, Peter preaches a sermon about them putting their Messiah to death. And they are cut to the heart. And they repent. And those sins, that sin of blasphemy, that sin of rejecting the Messiah, was forgiven for everyone who believed. But the Jews who blasphemed the Holy Spirit, who resisted the Holy Spirit, that sin was not forgiven. And we see what happened, uh, for example, in, in Acts chapter 7 with Stephen. He warned them, you are resisting the Holy Spirit. And that was the sin that would lead to death. And we, we understand what happened historically with the Jews later. So Jesus speaks in a way that is an echo of what we find back in the garden. And we need to understand Jesus in that context. Jesus gave a death penalty warning in his gospel. Even the apostles warned God's people of the one sin that would lead to death. Turn to 1 John, 1 John 5. I want to look at a couple of these examples here because these have been sort of strange texts that people have struggled with, particularly in our heritage. What in the world are they talking about? Well, when you put these texts in the story and understand that the the new covenant comes with a death penalty because the new covenant is really just the full unveiling of the Adamic covenant, then these texts make a lot of sense. 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. Again, these are concluding statements that John makes on his first letter to the churches. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything in His will... He hears us, 
And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of Him. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. What is John talking about? He's talking about the one sin that leads to death. Singular. And he's talking about praying for his brothers in the church who are caught in a fault and God will forgive them. But there's no need to pray for those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit because God will deal with them. That's really the distinction that John makes in 1 John chapter 5 and it goes back to the death penalty of the new covenant. Now turn also to Romans chapter 8. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 12. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Now remember what the story of the Bible is all about. The story of the Bible is all about God's people growing up to recognize the Father that they've always had since the very beginning. Verse 14, Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. That's what Adam could have cried. Adam was God's first son. Does it look to you like Paul is talking about the same thing that Adam was told? For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Paul's talking about tending the garden. He's talking about the warning. I'll give you another example. Hebrews chapter 10. Remember that the writer of Hebrews is talking to the church, to believers. And what does he say in verse 26? If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and who was insult, has insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Who's he talking to? He's talking to people in the church. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins remains. He's warning of death, just like the original garden in Genesis 2 and 3. Now, there are some other implications, but I think that that will give you a, an idea of, of what this garden series really means. It's a total transformation about how we look at Adam and Eve in the garden, how we look at our place in God's garden, and how we understand the entire story of the Bible. There are other implications I would love to talk about that flow from this idea of a covenant story of God's gospel garden from Genesis to Revelation, 
I don't have time to deal with this one particularly or do it justice, but consider covenant children. I think this is something that we could actually think about in terms of how we raise our children. If God's people have been placed back in God's garden by Jesus Christ and have been adopted as God's children, then that has significant implications about the status of our children. Because most Christians teach, well, they teach little kids. You're on your way to hell, right? That's what most Christians teach their children. You need to get saved because you're on your way to hell. Do you think that's very conducive to the growth of the gospel? To teach a child from the very, from, from the very, from their earliest memories that their God the Father hates them and wants to see them go to hell. We need to recognize that God's salvation is covenantal. God saves families. We see this all through the Bible, from Abraham's family to, back to Noah's family. Even Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden as a family. And when you look at the story of the Scriptures and what happens in the New Testament, Israel is brought back into the promised land of God's salvation as a family, which is actually related to this idea of a corporate body resurrection. It's a family resurrection. And so when we have people in, the, in, the, in, our, in our covenant context who are believers, and we have parents who have children, how do you have people in the garden having children that are outside? How does that work? Now, I can see having children in the church. I can see having children growing up in the, in the garden who apostatize like Adam. They give up the faith. They break God's commands. And they, have, they want to have nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe that's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That's the warning. That's the death penalty right there. But you don't assume that they're on their way to hell if all of God's people have been brought back to the garden. You teach them what Adam was supposed to learn. Live by faith in God's word. God has made you by grace and put you in a garden. Now obey him. It totally changes the way we look at our children, how we teach them. Because I'm, I'm convinced that, you know, Christians teach their children, you've got to get saved. Are you saved yet? Are you saved yet? Are you saved yet? Are you on, you're on your way to hell. You need to do something about it. And then we wonder why they grow up with that experience of who God is and become sons of hell. We have totally missed what the story of the garden is all about. And we've taught our children things that I do not believe can be justified from the scriptures. They are justified from our traditions, but I do not believe that they can be justified from our scriptures. And so this idea of the garden has tremendous implications for how we live and how we treat one another, how we treat our children, how we view our children in Christ until they engage in activity which brings about separation from God. God holds out life and death in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The same life and the same death that Adam was offered. May we choose life so that we may live forever in the good land that God has given us and with our children as well. For the promise is to us and to our children, for all those God calls by His grace to live by faith unto obedience. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You, Lord, for what You've done for us, for tending us, for being a shepherd to us, we pray that you would lead us and guide us in the way that you would have us to go. May we learn anew what it means to seek your kingdom first in all the things that we do and say. We pray for your blessing upon us as we fellowship, as your people, your called apart people, your, your 
separate holy people. We pray that you lead us and guide us in the week to come in all the many activities that we do. Bless us as we face all the difficulties and challenges that you've placed in our lives to make us strong in you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.